0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all sin, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Marshner, how you doing? Fine, thank you, sir. Dr.
2: Marshner, enlighten us. It's all yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, everybody. I started last time talking about development of doctrine. And I went through what Newman had to say about the conditions for an alleged development to really be a development. I laid out for you the several implications of his Criterion number 6 about preserving a doctrine. Uh, A development must preserve the past. Of the doctrine to which it pretends to be a development. And I went through that in some detail with you. Now, tonight, I need to apply that or to go a bit deeper, whichever seems more fruitful. As far as applying it is concerned, I think there was a hope that these talks of mine would touch on. A controversy over Pope Francis's encyclical uh, Amoris Laetitiae and uh, that famous footnote in there, and then the letter of the four cardinals to the Holy Father with their demands for clarification, five dubia they submitted to him, to which he never answered, and um Uh, other matters having to do with this current dispute over whether it would be possible somehow to afford the sacrament of Holy Communion and indeed penance for that matter to persons in objectively sinful situations given their lack of any will to remove themselves from those situations, such as a bad marriage. The trouble is, nobody in this debate, which has been going on for about two years now, anywhere alleges that the new pastoral permission, apparently championed by Pope Francis and the Argentine hierarchy and so on, Nobody alleges that that new permission is a development of doctrine. Nobody. Okay? The proponents don't allege that. The critics don't allege it. The critics fear it may be meant to be, but they don't say it is. And the defenders of it certainly don't say it is. Rather, what we seem to have in this latest quote, battle between, quote, conservatives and, quote, liberals in the church is a new, uh, or somewhat new, gap between doctrine and practice. The question seems to be whether, without changing the doctrine, the pastoral practice can be relaxed in some way or in some cases or under some circumstances or whatever. The letter of the four cardinals to Pope Francis posed those dubia, wondering whether there was any change of doctrine involved in this new pastoral practice. Could they continue to repeat what previous teachings had said what um, Trent had said, what John Paul II had said, and so on. And um, the lack of an answer, refusal to respond, made it clear that the Pope just did not want to raise that question. He is certainly not maintaining, and his defenders do not maintain, that he has developed any doctrines. And his best defender, uh, a layman actually, writes a defense of Amoris Laetitia in which he says, well, look look here, you'll see the traditional doctrine in this passage in that passage and the other passage. So everything is being repeated and nothing's being changed. So we do not have an alleged development, which is just as well because no development on this point is possible, okay? Uh, At least none in the normal sense of the word. I can sort of think of a way in which one of the clauses in Newman's note number six of a true development could be relevant. I gave it to you last time. It's the clause that says that no previous dogma may become trivial in its meaning if the alleged development is true. Now, suppose all of our previous marriage doctrine has been about marriage as a natural law phenomenon and then about marriage as a christian sacrament now we know that those are slightly different the christian sacrament has a supernatural dimension that the natural law institution does not have and um, suppose someone were to say that yeah all our previous doctrine was about marriage as a natural law institution and then marriage is a Christian sacrament and it was all good and it was all true and it was all right, trouble is those things just don't exist anymore, okay? There are no more natural law marriages, at least none to speak of, or there are no more Christian marriages. That sacrament never goes through anymore. Well, don't people come forward in church and get blessed and all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's null in every case. Now, saying that out loud would obviously trivialize the dogmas of the Council of Trent about the indissolubility of Christian marriage, the uh, sinful status of those who live in a matrimonial way with a woman who is not, in fact, married to them, and so on. All of those teachings would become trivial. Just like the church's rule against dueling has become, in effect, trivial because nobody duels anymore but that was a legitimate historical change and nothing prevents that. It seems difficult to imagine that something in people could have changed so much that the minimal understanding of marriage on which the natural law is based, and for that matter, the church's doctrine is based, could simply disappear to the extent that There were no more Christian vows, no more, and and, and indeed, no more natural law commitments. It's an implausible claim. Of course, I can understand why someone would advance it. Uh, Someone could say, look, we have always said there's something dirty and really rotten about modern society, modern culture, post-Christian, quote-unquote, culture, and now we can say in more detail what's rotten about it. The fundamental understanding of human freedom with which permanent commitments are to be embraced is no longer believed in, is no longer accepted. People are just... Raised in a society which puts no value on these things and doesn't teach these things. Well, as far as the younger generation is concerned, I'm very sympathetic to the claim that they don't know anything because they have been systematically uncatechized or decatechized or discatechized, whatever word you want there. Young people today, in too many parishes altogether, are taught pabulum rather than any Catholic doctrine. And it's not surprising if young people, even in Catholic families these days, grow up without having any suspicion that divorce is wrong that marriage is really, really, really indissoluble and that God insists on it. (laughs) The situation you can say is worse than just the failure of overly liberalized catechists. It's a problem of the whole culture. I mean, it used to be the job of catechists to dot the I's and cross the T's in the convictions that Catholic kids grew up with, that they got from their parents, from their neighbors, from the whole parochial culture in which their family life was supported. Nowadays, you can't be so sure of that. I have heard hair-raising stories about priests reporting their experiences with, quote, Catholic parents, unquote. They send their uh, 16, 17-year-old son off to the school prom. And daddy gives him a pack of condoms and says, have fun, my boy is be careful, but have fun. And the girls go off with packs of pills with the same kind of advice. This from allegedly, well, nominally Catholic parents. In other words, the chain of tradition through which the faith is passed down culturally from one generation to the next has broken down in all too many families in this country, as well as on the European continent. Yeah, and we we all know some of the reasons for that. We all know about the breakdown of the kind of discipline that sustains uh, self-control, the breakdown of traditional prohibitions, the mischaracterization of moral truth as, quote, inhibitions, and so on. So, it doesn't stretch the imagination too far to imagine that sometimes, in some cases, In American or European continent, or British or American European continental society, there are young people who have just grown up. They're nominally Catholic, but they haven't got a clue what it is they're supposed to be consenting to in marrying. I'm willing to listen (coughs) to arguments about this. I'm not sure I believe them. So I'm not at all sure that that the situation is that bad. The only thing that gives me pause is the fact that today, what we used to call the faithful in the church has been something like 80%, 90% replaced by a population of what I call apostates in place. They simply do not hold the faith anymore. But do they go away? No. The church is there a family tradition or something. They'll have some place to take the kids Sunday morning. I don't know. And we all know the segments of uh, sectors of American Catholicism that have dissolved into this kind of apostasy in place how does an impo- an apostate in place <coughs> transmit the faith to his or her children and the answer is they don't there's no way they do it they insist on certain ceremonies certain hoops you have to go through it's time for confirmation class time for this time for that but no effective Instruction, no effective catechesis goes with it. I don't want to talk about the moral standing of the clergy who support and tolerate this kind of population. You know what I mean? The priest has to know. None of these people believe. Or does he not want to know? anyway, it's not my purpose today to go on a rant about this. I know it's a problem. And so I am sympathetic with the claim that sometimes you have couples nominally Catholic, married in Catholic churches, now living with somebody else, but the validity of their first marriage simply cannot be determined. If they had the faith when they were first married, they would have known what they were doing. And they can't now claim ignorance. But if they didn't have the faith when they were married, had no ideas in their empty young heads at all, but those provided by contemporary youth culture, well, who's to say their consent was valid? If the consent was never valid, then the marriage was never valid. Now, these young people have moved on to other partners, and uh, no doubt they ought not to have done so, but who's to say that the bar to their new relationship is the validity of the old relationship. Its validity becomes unknowable. You see what I mean? So I'm willing to listen to arguments that say sometimes, in certain circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But the arguments all conclude wrong. The argument shouldn't say, well, these young people were as good as invincibly ignorant of what it meant to marry. And therefore, we can't tell whether they're really married or not. After all, we're not professional shrinks and we're not mind readers. We just can't tell. And therefore, we dare not admit them to communion. That's how the argument should go. If it's quite possible that all these people have ever been doing is fornicating, then we cannot admit them to communion. We will have to insist on a more detailed confession. Detailed confession and detailed moral catechesis. Answering, posing, I mean, tough questions. What do you know? What do you believe? And if you don't believe, obviously, we can't give you the sacraments. Because the sacraments are of and by and for the faithful. You're just not in the game anymore. Bye bye. You know what I mean? So I'm prepared to listen to arguments about new social conditions producing invincible ignorance but I cannot get to the conclusion that relaxed pastoral practice in the distribution of communion is a valid conclusion from any of that. Does everybody see what I mean? It would seem the opposite conclusion is the correct one. Yes. Now then, as I was saying before, however, None of the participants in this most recent controversy has alleged that the proposals of the Pope and certain German theologians are developments of doctrine. So I can't use any of my clubs against it. Okay? It doesn't pretend to be a development of doctrine, okay? If it isn't a development of doctrine, then what is it? I said it was a growing gap between doctrine and pastoral practice, in which the pastoral practice just doesn't get any justification. If the pastoral practice has no justification for doctrine, what is it doing being a pastoral practice? Oh, wait a minute. I've got too much of a doctrinal mind. I tell you what it's doing as a pastoral practice. It's keeping the pews full. It's keeping the collection baskets loaded. This is what the liberals in the church are worried about. If we really insist that people these days, especially after a whole generation or two, has been badly catechized, we really insist that they nevertheless live up to the church's changeless teachings, then we're going to find that these people just go away, right? there will be massive apostasy open this time. No longer apostasy in place, open this time. And the church will be reduced to a small socially and politically ineffective minority. I think this is what the progressives in the church are mainly worried about. They think that there ought to be such a degree of cohesion between the church's values and the practice of the church's people that the people are practicing what the church teaches and if that's not the case well then either you bring up the practice or you bring down the teaching one way or the other you get it even again so that the pews can remain full the church remains a large organization The faithful are big enough to make a difference in some society or other, preferably our own. If my thinking is correct about the real motives here, then I have something to say to these progressives. What I have to say is what Pope John Paul II said so often be not afraid. Fear not. The church cannot be destroyed by the forces of this world. She cannot be overcome by the gates of hell. can 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 she dwindle away into a tiny, ineffectual minority? Of course she can. Of course she can. Face it. Grow up nothing says that the big strong institution you once believed in and into which you once got yourself ordained is going to remain a big strong institution history is the devil's playground as well as the theater of divine providence right god does not guarantee that the church will always be numerous where it has been preached, that it will survive as a notable power in society. It can shrivel away to being the kind of remnant, to be the kind of remnant she has been in the Muslim world for over a thousand years. Right? Right? as you can shrivel away to being the kind of oppressed, powerless minority that she was under the communist regimes in Eastern Europe, right? Or under the Chinese regime today in China. These things are perfectly possible. We know because we have seen that God permits this kind of destruction whittling away, drying up, the thing to do is not to be afraid of it. It's no repudiation of the power of God. It's no evidence against the church that people no longer believe in her message or want her rules. That's no argument against the truth of what the church has to say. None whatsoever. If people don't believe it, that's no evidence of falsehood, right? People don't want to hear it, that's no evidence of falsehood. It may be evidence that our doctrine is a bitter pill. But C.S. Lewis already told us that. The trouble with modern society is we have to tell them about sin before we can convince them of the importance of anything else we have to say, and sin they don't want to hear about. That's the bitter pill. Go away. Right? So, be not afraid. The church will not fail. When Jesus asked whether the Son of Man, when he returned, would find faith on earth, was asking a rhetorical question. It was worth asking, I submit, because there are credible biblical prophecies of great apostasies to come. But it didn't mean that the faith would disappear altogether. The answer to his rhetorical question was not yes. The response to the question was to take the warning seriously. If we don't restore the vigor of our pastoral practice, then withering away is all that we can expect. Let me put it to you this way, another way. What we have learned over the course of history is that the church has been an extremely successful shaper of culture. Okay, She reshapes Greco-Roman classical society. She takes in hand the barbarian peoples in the West and in the East for that matter. And reshapes them into Christian peoples. Bulgaria, the Ukraine, Rus', the the, the great Rus', uh, all of these places were once pagan places that were Christianized very successfully by the church, mainly in the centuries before the Great Schism, but sometimes afterwards as well. So the church has proved that she is a marvelously successful shaper of cultures. That's not a question anymore. The question today is whether the church can survive as the embodiment of a counterculture. Can we survive as a counterculture living in protest against, in tension with, the majority of our fellows in the society we belong to? Hmm? I think the answer to that question is going to be yes. But it may mean putting on the back burner a lot of ambitions that we used to have. I remember being 25 and 30 years old, and I remember my enthusiasms in those days. And they had a great deal to do with the restoration of Christendom. Rock your rosary around your rifle, boys, and restore the Pope to glory and power. I, I love it. I love it. But it was a youthful dream that has faded away with the lapse of time. The breakdown of Christendom. In places where you would never have expected it to break down. Where have we got it anymore? Not Italy. Certainly not France. Certainly not Ireland. (laughs) Malta? Christendom has broken down practically everywhere. And so we have to put our ambitions to restore it on the back burner. Don't give them up. Don't say, oh, we were wrong, ever we were want a Christian Society. No, we weren't. We were right. The church is a marvelously successful shaper and former of human societies. Marvelous at it. Just give her a hand. It's not a false hope, but not all good hopes can be acted upon immediately. Something else has to turn around first. The job of a successful counterculture will be to undermine the majority's belief in the going liberal culture. And we've been pretty good at that, at least from time to time. We bring forth, Catholic scholars bring forth the statistics on the social breakdown that comes with divorce. The falling achievement rates of children who are the offspring of divorced parents. The feminization of poverty, remember that? Back in the 70s, it was always, all of a sudden discovered that the permissive society left women in poverty. The guy gets to keep the salary and she gets to keep nothing but the kids, eek. Hello? We could have told you this was coming. You don't like to see poverty feminized? Stick to the norms of marriage. Make sure they're socially enforced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have not yet been widely believed in our criticism of contraception because the modern world thinks it's just too much fun to ever give up And yet here again, the medical facts are staggering, and for that matter, the environmental facts are staggering, shattering, sobering. The amount of estrogen in our water supply is the main thing responsible for making the next generation of men impotent, or uh, I mean, uh, unproductive anyway, sterile. That's what I want. Well, it's not what I want, but that's what I fear is coming. And some people are beginning to see it. The connection between abortion and breast cancer. Oh, my God, no, don't say that. And yet, for all the fierce denials, the evidence has been mounting. Hasn't it? So there are issues on which we have made some headway. All right. But the strategy for being a successful counterculture, where the strategy is to eventually undermine confidence in the going culture, the strategy to be such a successful counterculture is poles apart from a pastoral stance of you're okay, I'm okay. You want the Eucharist, here it is. We give candy to everybody, etc. No, 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 no. John Paul II, in his critique of the culture of death, was a pioneer of the strategy we now need to become a successful counterculture. Vatican II simply didn't see the necessity for this. Vatican II was conducted in an optimistic dream world. John Paul II saw what needed to be done and did it. Benedict saw what needed to be done and did it. Pope Francis, I think, maybe beginning to see a little of what needs to be done. After all, he is the one who finally sacked the hierarchy of Chile, took the resignation of an archbishop from Australia, and has now taken, to my applause at any rate, the resignation of Archbishop McCarrick, Cardinal McCarrick, from the American hierarchy. McCarrick was a 10,000 decibel liberal over his entire ecclesiastical career, an enemy. Of faith and traditionalism in the church. So was that Creep Wilson in Australia. So were a whole lot of bishops in Chile. Yes. The Pope has begun to see the depth of the ethical crisis in the clergy of a church that tries to move along with and in harmony with the going culture. No, we are countercultural or we are nothing these days. Okay. Now, I had intended to spend a lot of time tonight talking about doctrinal development on a somewhat deeper level philosophically. Um, I wanted to remind you all of uh, the most important metadogma in all the teaching of the church. What is a meta dogma? It's a dogma about dogmas. It says what you can't do to dogma. It's in Denzinger here. I have the copy right in front of me. It's Denzinger 3043, and I'm going to give you the English. If anybody says that as science progresses, sometimes a sense should be given to dogmas proposed by the church, different from the sense that the church has understood and understands. If anybody says that, let him be anathema, okay? You cannot give the dogmas of the church a different sense under any pretext, metaphysical, sociological, under any pretext, a sense different From what the church has historically understood and now understands. Every way of violating those ingredients in Cardinal Newman's sixth note of a valid development, every one of those ingredients slaps down a form of the error condemned here in Denzinger canon 3043 if you have a copy of denzinger if you don't get one but if you have one it's number 3043 it is our most important meta dogma it is a dogma proclaimed by vatican I, not only in the main text but in the canon so it's it's a dogma all right and it's a dogma about other dogmas namely about what you can't do to them you can't give them another sense Now, there's a lot to unpack in that, including a rather deep point, which I had wanted to talk about and have talked myself out of time instead. If you can't give dogmas a different sense, a different meaning, from what the church now understands, then what is a dogma? And don't say it's a proposition. Because a proposition is supposed to be the meaning of a sentence. If I give you a sentence in English and another sentence in German, and they have the same meaning, you're going to say, well, that expresses the same proposition. Yeah, so a proposition is the meaning of a sentence? So the church is telling you not to give another meaning to a meaning? What is that? No. What is really deeply being taught here is that a dogma is a sentence. It is a sentence. It's not a sentence token. If I say it twice, it's not two dogmas. It's a sentence type. And a sentence type is in a given language. What we count as a dogma in another language is a translation of the dogma in the original language. Okay? We know how to keep sentences straight. Everybody's elementary education was about this. The subject and the predicate, and what is and is not a synonym, and what you can and cannot change. We all know how to handle sentences. It's a tremendous protection and relief to find out that the dogmas of the church are sentences, originally in Greek or in Latin they are sentences and so we can see with insight when somebody is monkeying with the interpretation right on the other hand if i tell you oh no a sentence a dog was not a sentence it's a proposition but what is a proposition oh well it's a nexus of concepts oh, okay uh, what's a concept what's a nexus what is a nexus of concepts I don't know that this nexus is the same as that nexus. All of these moves take us away from common sense, common human ability to use and interpret language. Don't let the modernists steer you that way. Insists dogmas are sentences to which you cannot attribute a different meaning. Okay, what has to say the same if a sentence is to keep the same meaning? I have a copy of the sentence written in 1820, and I have another copy written in 1980. Uh, How how do I determine that the meaning of the 1980 sentence is the same as the meaning of the 1920 sentence? 1820 sentence. I had a whole lecture about that and I didn't leave us time to consider it. Someday they will invite me and this institution to give a lecture about dogmas, sentences, propositions, and so on, and concepts. And I will be happy to hold forth at great length. But tonight is not that night. This is not that opportunity. Instead, I propose to cut off at this point so as to allow plenty of time for questions. All right?
1: Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Excellent uh, presentation, social commentary, teaching, and so forth. And uh, we're just blessed to have you here with us. Uh, Lawrence Beach asked, What should a faithful Catholic do if he or she See, the other members of the congregation who are not believing and acting as good Catholics should. What if he or she sees and hears the pastor or priest not believing or acting as a good Catholic leader? Well, that's a pretty wide open question. Dr. Mershner, feel free to respond or not respond as you like.
2: Well, it's a huge question. The best I can do is to give you the advice that we receive in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. If you see a brother behaving in the wrong way, you confront, you challenge. If he doesn't repent, you bring others along and a group confronts this person. And if he still doesn't see a problem with his conduct, his or her conduct, then you turn your back on him or her, okay? If it's your parish priest, <laughs> best to look for another parish we all have cars these days some of us do anyway a decent parish is usually within driving distance peggy
0: this remnant idea that there's there's really a big part of this country that you could put together and have a remnant we know this we know the churches Right. What will it take to do that? And is it would it ever be the right thing to do if nobody's listening? Because they're not listening in churches, you know? When, when you ask people get fired, people get um, defrocked, yeah. et cetera, because they're sticking up to the truth. Yeah. And, and I don't know how that's – I mean, it only makes sense to me to have Pope, a remnant. Pope Benedict yeah. said we're going to be a remnant. Too.
2: Yeah, well, if we're going to be a remnant, that means that – the catholic church is going to be the remnant yeah not some self proclaimed remnant okay so when dealing with apparent remnants make sure they are still in communion with the universal church okay beware of schism flee schism as you would flee a scorpion
1: Dr. Marshner, we have a question coming in from Allison Lowe, who says that it seems that in some documents, such as some of the documents of Vatican II and Amoris Laetitia, the wording of the sentences are vague, uh, which seems to leave open the possibility of different interpretations. And I'm just going to add to that, and the fear is that that's intentional.
2: Can you speak to that? Sometimes... Looser language is appropriate because certain amendments are acceptable. They don't violate the canons against false developments. If you have a proposition, a church sentence, an interpreted church sentence, inflexible in meaning, can it be nuanced in some way? Sure it can. You can add a clause, and that addition may be acceptable. This is how I handle John Paul II's interventions on the subject of capital punishment. I don't want to tell you how great a fan of capital punishment I am. (laughs) And (laughs) the, the Pope doesn't seem to be a fan of it at all. And he said, only if Only rarely these days, because it can only be used if. So he's not denying anything traditionally affirmed, like the right of governments to exercise capital punishment upon wrongdoers. He's simply saying, well, the traditional doctrine needs an extra clause. Namely, if you can't protect society any other way. Which we think hardly happens anymore, but never mind that. Now, the tradition didn't say uh, you can't execute unless this is the only way to protect society. But I think that the general Christian charity, Christian mercy in general, would have assumed that capital punishment was only to be used in dire necessity, right? Right? Did all of the Kings of the Middle Ages restrict themselves to dire necessity? No, but I don't have to defend their political practices. Okay? I would certainly never defend the political practices of Henry VIII, who was an even bigger believer in capital punishment than I am. But <laughs> sometimes you can take a doctrine without changing anything traditional in it, and add a nuance to it, which is acceptable, because it goes along with some general church attitude held earlier, right? So you can't word things in such a way that would exclude any possible nuance, because sometimes nuances are OK.
1: Dr. Marshner, um, there's a couple questions. Have you written anything on this subject, On I think in particular on the point of the meaning our meaning and sentences and such and, and so forth uh, that you could point us to or would make available to us through the Institute
2: that we could email out to the attendees. Years ago, I contributed to an apologetics book put out by Christendom College called Reasons for Hope. I wrote the chapter in here on the defense of dogma and the chapter on the development of dogma. Both of those chapters are short enough that they could be Xerox off and distributed here from the ICC. I have written a longer discussion of this whole issue in an essay which I haven't published yet. It's really a monograph called On the Implicit. It's a study of what implicit meaning is, how the implicit can be made explicit, legitimately and so on and so on and where it's illegitimate. I suppose if anyone were courageous and prepared to suffer through long footnotes, uh, my uh, monograph on the implicit could be made available to such person.
1: You know, let's conclude the night with a, um, a question that I'm going to take as, to answer. And Dr. Marster, feel free if you want to add anything uh, from Teresa Cotter, who is a member of our board, a great supporter of the Institute. And uh, she asked the question, other than supporting the ICC, I like the way she begins this sentence, by the way, other than, that. Other than, <laughs> other than supporting the ICC, how can we support our countercultural church? I just want to. Lay this out for all of you. First of all, culture is always lived out in communion. Okay? So number one, you have to be in communion and communication with one another. Too much isolation going on in the church where I go and rubber stamp my Sunday attendance, and I don't build relationships within our community. Um, and I know Teresa and Dan and, and Amy Smith and, and others have really begun to build, even within the Institute, relationships, friendships, so critically important to living catholic culture the fact is how do we support counter culture in the church is by living catholic culture and to live catholic culture is the why we established the institute of catholic culture your education is a fundamental part of that but it cannot end to that it must be incarnate in your life we have to learn how to sing and dance again in the church we have to learn how to live as catholics in the church we learn need to learn how to have fasting And festivity in the church. By the way, the Feast of the Dormition, the Assumption of the Mother of God, is coming up in two weeks. And, uh, you know, what about fasting in preparation for the feast? And then beginning now to plan to invite your friends over following Mass to your home for a grand celebration of the feast on the 15th. If you want to destroy anti Catholic culture, don't just destroy something and leave it vacant, fill it with the right things in your life, and you will be living out Catholic culture, which is a counterculture to what is going on in the world. Dr. Marshall, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Maybe, in light of what Father has just said, uh, we should be a little bit less critical of the revolutions in personal communication, everybody's on Facebook, everybody's on Twitter. You have to be a practical hermit like me to be out of touch with other people today. So you have got means of communicating your ideas and your enthusiasms and your plans, and, and I recommend um, using them. Other than the ICC, I can also recommend uh, the uh, the Journals of Catholic Apologetics. This Rock, is that still in print? That's still being published? I do believe so, yeah. I mean, think that, that's a good one. <clears throat> the National Catholic Register is at least reliable. When heretical outfits mail letters to me asking for contributions, I like to use their enclosed envelope and put a brick in it that considerably raises their postal bill. (laughs) So my contribution is putting them in debt. I hope. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh. (laughs) Right. Um, but see, I'm too much of an academic to respond to that question properly. I mean, I think of forums and talks and debates and and things, but life doesn't revolve around those exclusively.
1: I will say this, Doctor Marshner, that there was a a, a night when I was uh, late night discussing the fine points of theology and ended up on a debate over the charismatic movement on the back porch of my cabin overlooking the Shenandoah River, and after a couple of nice glasses of wine with the friends and so forth, we called Dr. Marshner at about 1130 at night. He answered his phone, got in his car, drove to my home, and we continued our conversation in the wee hours of the morning. And I'll tell you, that's an example of being available, being willing to speak with others and building relationships and restoring proper Catholic culture and communion with one another. And I thank you, Dr. Marshner, for that, the sacrifice you've made to be with us so many times here at the Institute. I encourage you, please, not, when, I, when, when Teresa says other than supporting the ICC, look, I'm not gonna let her get away with that. There's a lot of ways you support the ICC and not just financially. Because when Dr. is teaching, or, or other great teachers, Father Scalia and others. You can't keep that to yourself. It's not a matter, it's the ICC, Institute of Catholic Culture, non-profit organization, 501c3. It's the Catholic faith, for God's sake. And you have an opportunity to share it with other people. Right. So share it. Get it out there. Not because ICC owns it. We don't own anything. I stole everything we have at the Institute from somebody else. And tonight we stole the great mind of Dr. William Marshner, and now you can take it out there to the highways and byways and share it with your friends, and just as he said, on Twitter, on Facebook, and so forth, make it available in your parishes. Print off your uh, uh, the articles, copy CDs, whatever it takes. Get the word out there. and Invite others to participate, not because it's the Institute of Catholic Culture, not because Father Hezekiah has founded it, but because I got Peggy and David and, Mac- and Macrina. I've got Lawrence and Janice and Pat. And here we are sharing a conversation together. That's living. And we need to restore life within the church. Amen. We need to restore life in the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work,